Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Your hosts are Becky Olson and Sharon Hennepin. Our show is here to help breast cancer patients, survivors, their friends and family with the resources, support, and inspiration they can use right now. Here are your hosts, Sharon and Becky. Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. My name is Becky Olson. I'm a five-time, nearly 23-year survivor of advanced stage breast cancer. I'm also a motivational speaker, a speaker mentor, and the published author of The Hat That Saved My Life. Sharon is the other co-host of this show, but she is off today. She's got out-of-town company and some other things going on, so we just decided to give her the morning off so she could enjoy her family. Um, Sharon and I are also the co-founders of Breast Friends, and we started Breast Friends about 19 years ago now. Um, But before we get on with our guest and introducing our guest, I wanted to just kind of share a little thing that came up yesterday, and, and it's something that I've always believed in, but, you know, when you have specific examples of something, it, it kind of helps paint the picture. But, um, you know, some my husband and I believe in the power of prayer and always have. And, you know, when, when things, when you, when you really want something and you're praying really hard and, you know, everyone says, just pray about it, you'll get it. Well, it, it doesn't always get you what you want, but it gets you what you're supposed to have. <laughs> and I wanted to share that because I don't know how many of you have had the experience where, you know, I'll just give you a specific example. When my husband and I were first married, we went house hunting. Um, I lived in Seattle. He lived in Portland. And we were moving. We we're living going to live in Portland. So we put my house on the market up in Seattle. And we were house hunting down here. And we found a house that we really liked. Been on the market for about a year. We thought, wow, that we should be able to get this at a pretty good price. And we had to wait for the house to sell up in Seattle. So we, we put the, an, a contingent offer on the house been vacant for a year. I mean, this seemed like a sure thing to us. And before we could even finish writing the offer, another full price offer came through on that house. So (laughs) it was like, okay, I guess we're not supposed to live there. And there must be some reason for that. Well, a short time later, my husband was offered an opportunity to transfer to Medford. And we Um, He took the opportunity and we went. So had we bought that house in Portland, that would have been another burden to try to sell that one so that we could move to Medford then. Well, when we got to Medford, we had the same situation. I'd had no offers on the house in Seattle. And we had basically three days to go down there and find a place to live. I was six months pregnant at the time. And we found this beautiful old kind of drafty home, but it was gorgeous, had hardwood floors. It was just felt perfect for us as a place to raise our family. And we stood in the middle of the living room of that house and we prayed about it. And then we went back to the real estate office and we were writing up a contingent offer on the house when we got a call. And this call came from my real estate agent up in Portland telling me that we just got a full price offer on the house. And I mean, if that didn't send chills, (laughs) you know, we knew that, you know, when you do the right thing for the right reasons, the path just kind of lays down in front of you sometimes. And if the path doesn't lay down in front of you, possibly you're going down the wrong one. So just something to think about, you know, when, when we don't always get our way, the, th- the things that we want, it possibly just means that there's something better just around the corner. And so don't give up and don't lose heart and don't think, oh, man, I failed at that. No, it's the picture is much, much bigger than that. You know, I heard a pastor say one time, John Corson, he said, 
the devil's got the Polaroid. God's got the big picture. And I love that because sometimes things just flash in front of your face to remind you of how terrible things are, but God's got the big picture. So just hang in there. And I, I know we don't normally get all religious on this show, but... But that was really super on my heart today to share that. So with that, (laughs) I am going to introduce our fabulous guest today, and we are going to talk about recovery and rejuvenation after cancer. Our guest is Dr. Linda Larkey. Dr. Larkey is a professor and researcher at Arizona State University. She's with the College of Nursing and Health Innovation. And for the past 25 years, her research has centered on ways to help people, especially those in underserved communities, adopt healthier behaviors for reducing risk of cancer and other lifestyle-related diseases. Most recently, in the past 10 years, she's focused primarily on how to how exercise, mind-body practices, and social engagement supports cancer survivors who regain wellness. So welcome, Dr. Larkey. I'm so happy to have you on our show. Thank you so much. And I am greatly appreciating the story that you just shared. Just have too many of those experiences. I understand. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. You know, we, we try to stay kind of not super, you know, that way because we have an audience of listeners across the the board and we we never intend to insult or make anybody feel less than but there is something about the power of prayer and you know when you listen for the answer you don't always get the answer you expect but you always get the answer you need and I and I love that so thank you for acknowledging that Um, so why don't you take a few minutes and tell our audience a little bit about yourself talk about your family where you're from and what I'd love to know is what you did in your life before you started into research. What was what was that part of your life like? Okay, I'm happy to share. Um, you'll find that many folks that have gone into research, um, you know, at the higher academic level, do that from, you know, right after they finish up their school and their postgrad, and they end up having a straight line into research. And so my life and my work has been a lot more circuitous. I did come to Arizona. I live here in in Phoenix, Arizona, when I was nine years old and um, had come from Cincinnati with a family that moved here. Mother's an immigrant. uh, Father, you know, grew up in Indiana. So landing here in Arizona, always imagined I would do something much broader and wider in in the world. And still here I am in Arizona, and I'm grateful (laughs) for that. So uh, three boys, all grown up. uh, Oldest is 44, three grandchildren, oldest granddaughter is 20. So, you know, I'm used to working a lot with the Latino population here in Arizona. We usually sit there and we introduce ourselves by also telling each of our family members' names and ages and whatever. So I won't do all of that, but (laughs) it seems part of the introduction, you know? You know, when you say that that your boy is the oldest is 44, you said, and your grandchild is 20, doesn't that make you feel old? (laughs) My, yes. My, my daughter, my old, we have five children and four grandkids, and my oldest daughter is, uh, shoot, she was born in 73, so what does that make her? Um, Almost 46 then, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> when I think about that, I remember I, I had her when I was 20, and she was 40, and I, I said to her, you know, when, one day that um, when she was 
I don't know, 40, I don't know. What do you, anyway, she goes, well, mom, oh, she was almost 40. And I said, honey, you're almost 40. She goes, well, mom, then you're almost 60. And she was still like, we were still like three years away from that time frame. But she reminded me of that. And it's like, oh, yeah, okay, shut up. <laughs> Exactly. So there were a number of other things that I've done before that, including being a respiratory therapist. Um, I did organizational um, consulting for quite a while. Um, and I spent quite a bit of time back and forth in working in the context of um, holistic medical clinics back when they were just really fringe. So teaching yoga and mm-hmm. um, dreams for health and so, long before I got my PhD. So that was all before the age of 40 when I finally alighted into the world of research. Well, how did you how did you know way back then when you were so young and growing up in Arizona, how did you know that you wanted to get into that? that field that's kind of there on the edge of medical. What, how did you know that? I always noticed that I was thinking about things a little differently. So even when I trained in respiratory therapy, when I would come into a patient's room rather than just load up the nebulizer and give them a treatment, I'd also get down at the other end of the bed and, you know, massage their feet and talk to them and get them to talk to me. And they gave me all the grumpiest old patients that <laughs> nobody else could get convinced to take their treatments. So they're, And start exploring places in their back and shoulders, like, how does that feel? And they, oh, that helps me breathe better. So, oh, like, so you're, yeah, you're learning as you go. That's, that's yeah. wonderful. Well, you know, you, your story just fascinates me because you've got some interesting components to it. I want to hear about living off the grid. What, what do you mean by that? And what was that like? Well, off grid means living out of the grid of the electrical system. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, several years ago, I found some land that I that I wanted to explore and buy up in the mountains above San Diego in an area that is off grid. So this land was just, you know, trees and flowers and plants that had no electricity, no water, no nothing. And Ooh, I no put a water. Bought it. I put a little shed up and I also had um, a well dug, which that's quite an undertaking. Yeah. And and so for a, for a while I t- dreamed about what might I do with this place and you didn't really know. I just I just sort of moved on a on a whim that maybe had been a long time dream. And I ended up staying up there off and on, figured out how to have a hotspot, use my phone. I could work from there. So I could go live in that shed for several days in a row while I began to organize getting the the well dug, getting uh, slowly building a, a tiny little house. And now I have a getaway. I can get up there usually, you know, every every few weeks for a while. And I have days where I don't see anybody for a few days. There's neighbors, but they're quite a distance away. You know, that that's so important, isn't it? To just be able to get away and have a place to go that's yours, that you're comfortable with. And, you know, I mean, I know you can go to, always go to a hotel or something, but it's not the same as having, even if it's small, having that place that's that's yours with yeah. your things that make you comfortable. So I'm assuming you have water and electric there now. It's solar power, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whatever happens, right? Yeah, that's that's right. wonderful. 
Yeah. yeah, my husband and I have a little place down in Florence, Oregon, um, on a lake, and it was a lifelong dream of mine to have a cabin on a lake. And every time we'd find one, there was something major wrong with it. <laughs> we finally yeah. found this one; it just happened to open up. And there's another spiritual story I could tell you about that, but we've done enough of that in a day right now. So, um, <laughs> but that one just kind of popped into our into our our spot right at the right time, and there we love it. We've had it now for about nine years, and it's yeah. just a great place to go. So, okay, let's let's switch gears a, a little bit because we have a lot to talk about. And I want to know about, you know, I know that you do research with studies. And I know that they're very important. I'm actually in a study right now for immune therapy. Um, I'm on a drug that has not been FDA approved yet for breast cancer, although it's been approved for other kinds of cancers. And I know that if all goes well, the study will work for me. And if it works for me and it works for enough others, then it can hopefully be released by the FDA as a standard of care treatment. And I think that's probably the goal with most drug trials any, anyway. And um, I'm hoping that, you know, for that outcome, it's, we'll see yes. what happens. Yes. Um, but what do you think is the most compelling reason people sign up to be in a study? Because you do, you do that kind of work, right? Right. The research um, is is very different from the kind of research that you just described, but it doesn't matter what kind of research it is. There are many reasons that, that people will sign up. But what I hear the most is often they're, they're hoping to contribute something back. And they know that if they're participating in that study, that knowledge will be gained and that people eventually will benefit from that. We'll know better what treatment is the best. We'll know better, um, you know, which might work for an individual person given their particular profile. So it's, it's true that our research really builds one drop at a time. You know, we learn such tiny little bits usually out of any one piece of research, but it's the combined effort of people willing to join in and be part of a study, mm-hmm. as well as the continued efforts of researchers reproducing and doing research that just takes us one step further until we can look at the big picture and yeah. be able to understand now that we have the, these many studies have shown this, we now can understand it better. So That's often, great. I, yeah. And so for future generations, I guess just the more you learn with each step and the more side effects you're able to determine exist, um, the more things you can kind of, you know, figure out. And, and yeah, it's, you know, they, they came up with, for breast cancer patients, you know, they came up with the sentinel node biopsy as, a, as a, an okay method of taking lymph node biopsies. Right. And there was a time when that was not, my first time through cancer, that didn't even exist. It may have existed somewhere in a trial that I didn't know about. But um, by the second time around, I, I, that was an option for me. And it was, that was certainly the one I wanted because the first time they took 16 lymph nodes out from under my arm. And that, that hurt. That actually hurt more than the cancer tumors. So I'm, I'm very much a, a, a believer in trials. And if you, know, if you can do it and it makes sense, and there may be some you know, success for you as well, um, yeah, it's and, and it will help because you become part of that legacy, you know, down the road too. So I agree with that. So why don't you tell us, we only have a couple more minutes before the first break, but we can be a little flexible on this one. So if we kind of get into it and we have to take a break, then we'll pick it up on the other side. But why don't you tell us a little bit about the type of research that you're doing? Well, let me go back just really briefly. Okay. Where- 
or from the beginning of what I, when I started into research, it was all very prevention oriented. So it was all about how do we reach our communities with messages about how you might reduce your risk for cancer, many different cancers. And when I started, we still didn't know a lot about what might reduce your risk, but we did know that eating more fruits and vegetables, we knew that um, getting regularly screened could at least um, catch it at an earlier stage or for colorectal cancer, actually catch it before it starts. And that the the different things that we could do in our lifestyle, especially um, physical activity would be making a difference for the future. And it's really hard to get people to change those behaviors. So a lot of that early research was focused on that. And because my father had, um, we'd lost him after several rounds of different types of cancers. We finally, um, he finally succumbed to colorectal mm-hmm. cancer. I ended up finding myself focusing on that quite a bit. And many of the same prevention tactics for colorectal cancer are also shown for breast. So a lot of the research was how do we reach people? What are the messages? What are the ways we can get them to influence each other amongst their peer groups? And a lot mm-hmm. of that work was done in our low-income populations and Latino populations here in Arizona. Okay. Well, and I, I'm sorry about your dad. How long ago was that that you lost him? Oh, it's been it's been over 18 years. Yeah. Really? Wow. Yeah. My, you know, it's that that's a hard one. And you know, when you have it in your family. Um, I have I have a gene mutation that leads to um, mm. potential growth of breast and colon cancer. It's not mm. not the BRCA testing, but because I tested negative for those, but I have one called Check Two, and it 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 I, you know people say that that these mutations cause cancer. They don't cause cancer. They right. they don't allow your body to fight the cancer cells, the early ones as they develop. And my dad, obviously, if I got it, I got it from one of my parents. And my dad, I got it from my dad, but he's never had cancer. But his mom, his sister, his brother, his niece, they all got cancer. And his dad, his brother got colon cancer. So it's, you know, it's it's kind of scary when you see it go through your family. Then you kind of have to wonder, you know, what what next? So have you ever worried about getting cancer yourself? Of course. Um, but I, I spend a lot less energy on worrying and I spend a lot more energy on making sure I'm doing all the testing and screening and um, I, the way that we try to teach people to eat and I exercise very, very, very regularly. Yeah, I don't feel like I'm running from it, but I feel like I'm taking a positive, you know, face forward. That's, that's excellent. Well, you know what? We're not going to get into that conversation about what you're doing for research now until after the break. So stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Great. Thanks. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to keep our doors open and to keep this radio program alive. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can visit us at breastfriends.org. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Women's Channel. For Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio, visit breastfriends.org and contribute today. When was the last time you felt free? It's time to uncover that feeling. 
again with the compassion of a cross and shield and the power of a car that opens doors to the best hospitals and medical centers in all 50 states. Giving you the freedom to love, to dream, to dance like no one is watching. Regions Blue Cross Blue Shield. Live fearless. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. are tuned into Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. To reach the program today, please call us at 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to becky at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Well, welcome back to our program. We've been talking with our guest, Dr. Linda Larkey. And we are we didn't get to this one question that I forgot to ask you right up front, and that is, how did you get into the work that you're doing now? I mean, you, you always had that kind of perimeter interest, and all of a sudden, boom, here you are. How'd you get into that? Yes. Well, I think what happens in life sometimes is you, you're going along a path that makes sense for the next step, and then some other stream comes in and meets it. And, and for me, it's often been that way. So even though I was working in the area of cancer prevention and lifestyle behaviors related to that, I found that I was becoming more and more interested in what happens after that experience of having cancer because of, you know, experiences of people around me. And so the early experiences in yoga, things that uh, then eventually transitioned into learning um, Qigong and Tai Chi, things that I've always been attracted to in my life course as my own practices and deep meditation and what that meant for me, um, it started to make sense to see if I could investigate that in the context of cancer survivors. But when I first started doing research, I could not have built a career on that. And that's really significant that the world has changed so much around what is understood and known about these practices, that they're not just woo-woo out there things, but they have very, very solid kinds of results and consequences that change the biochemistry of your body so that you can do better in you know, offsetting the effects of treatment, offsetting the effects of having a cancer diagnosis over time, that it began to inspire me to move into that. And so it's where, where I moved into um, changing my career track or my research track, even though I still have some of the prevention stuff that I do, um, is moving it into things that look at what are the physical activity-oriented things, what are the things that change your level of stress, that change that biochemical soup that we have inside of us that allow the cancer to develop in the first place that we may begin to try to change. Well, um, you know, I think that's that's really important. And as you were saying that, I was thinking, I had a thought going through my head that some of these things you're talking about maybe, maybe some of the things that make, if you have two people, let me backtrack, if you have two people diagnosed with the same kind of cancer, same same basic set of circumstances, but one 
gets through it. Not, it's never easy to get through it, but one gets through it and the other one declines. And we've see, we see it happen in the work that we do with breast friends. We see it happen where, you know, some women will get through breast cancer and they're done with it, never to have it again. And then others will get it repeatedly and, and yeah. some will survive and some won't. And is the research that you do or the, the work that you do in those, you know, areas of exercise and is that a, a part of what maybe makes that difference? I, I don't know. There's a huge controversy out there, and it's it's probably based on people's uh, preconceptions and researchers' beliefs that then influence the way they interpret the data. And okay. so I would never say that's what makes the difference. There's You know this. There's so, so many factors that make a difference in what happens. Mm-hmm. But what we do know is that some of the very things that we know of as biomarkers for predicting better outcomes are the things that these kinds of practices, whether it's physical activity or some of the more, you know, mind-body focused practices, mm-hmm. change those. They reduce the inflammatory markers. They have an effect on the NF-kappa-B. They have an effect on the markers that we know may make a difference, along with many other things, in somebody's uh, progress. So it's, yes, you're right. There's some of that there and that we can't say definitively. Usually our studies are designed to look at more immediate effects and then okay. even maybe a year later. But we're not doing these kind of studies at this point. There's, there's, there are very few that have these kind of follow-ups that look down the road. But even then, it's only going to be one of many factors that contribute to the direction that someone goes. Okay, that's fair. Um, so tell me about the research, the kind of research you are doing right now. What Can you give okay. us some examples? Sure. I have a number of uh, smaller studies running, but the biggest one that, the, that we have is a large randomized control trial. It's only in the greater Phoenix metropolitan area because people get randomized to come to one of three different classes. And the classes are all designed to support breast cancer survivors and examine how well those particular interventions work on some of the most common side effects and symptoms that, that we see with this, with this um, recovery process. And other, you know, I've got some, some, and the, the design of that study includes an education sort of social support group. One is a, a movement, a gentle movement activity, and one is um, gentle movement, but combined with more of a meditative focus as well. So okay. we, have, we have these, no, we know these three things can provide some help, but we're comparing them. Okay. So people just come in and they sign up for this program. Well, we'll actually come back to that at the end because, right. you know, our audience is very global, and but I'm sure that there are similar types of things going on in other parts of the world. Can you speak to maybe how they would access information like that? So we have a huge audience in Ireland, for example. I don't know why, but we're glad. (laughs) So um, how would somebody go about finding this type of trial activity going on in in a community near them? Well, you know, I I have one best route to go through – our government, and that's so for this country. If you're in another country, one of the best ways to do this is to contact cancer centers that are near you and just ask, are there clinical trials going on? Are there behavioral 
trials going on, even though they're they're considered clinical trials. There's they're more lifestyle behavioral. Or okay. are, are there any studies going on for, you know, and then describe who you are and what your particular stage or phase is. Okay. So call a cancer center. Call a yeah. cancer center tomorrow. That's, that's so uh, simple. <laughs> locally uh, or in this country, clinicaltrials.gov. Clinicaltrials.gov. So that includes things that are not like pharmace- pharmaceuticals and stuff. It, it does include the pharmaceuticals. It includes the non-pharmaceuticals. Okay. Great. Clum- uh, clinicaltrials.gov, you said, right? Right, yeah. Okay, good. All right. Well, let me ask you this question. Um, as a research scientist, because you've been around the block a few times here with us, what do you find are the most prevalent s- symptoms that persist for breast cancer patients after treatment ends? Yeah, and that's that's significant. It's actually the list is very similar across many types of cancers, but fatigue is still pretty much at the top of the list. We also see the sisters, anxiety and depression. They come together often. Sleep disruption is very, very common. Um, Cognitive dysfunction, so trouble with memory and executive function. Um, There's there's also, depending on the particular treatment, there's... um, a lot, a lot of women land with peripheral neuropathy or that tingling and numbness, numbness in the fingertips and the toes, mm-hmm. and then other, other types of pain, of course. I totally relate to pretty much all of those. <laughs> you know, I've, I've been through this so many times, and, you know, it's, it's a, an interesting thing when, and I think the first time you go through cancer, you there's an expectation that when you're done, you know, some clinics will ring the bell for you on your last chemo. My last yeah. radiation, they they shot off little uh, Star Wars guns and made all kinds of noise and racket on my last radiation treatment. And yeah. then you go home and you're done with treatment. And then somebody says, yay, you're done. What's mm-hmm. for dinner? <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh, you have no idea, <laughs> you know, because yeah. those things do linger and they can linger a very long time, yeah. you know, because your body has just been through a war, basically. And and it takes a long time to heal those those wounds. And every one of those wounds that you mentioned is a very real thing. And I have experienced all of them in some capacity, as have many, many, uh, most, probably most of the patients that we work with at Breast Friends. So right. it. If our, if our listeners are feeling any of those things, it is perfectly natural. So, you know, does it matter when you guys, when you're doing your studies, does it matter um, how severe their cancer was or how severe their treatment was for the impact of these things? Or does it, does it cross all those lines? Absolutely. Yes and no, though. And my research isn't about trying to sort that out. We just find the, the women who have these particular symptoms and then we okay. work with them. But oh. however... There, there are studies that do look at that sort of thing, and there are some things that are a little more specific for radiation, a little more specific for chemo, like certain chemotherapies that seem to cause more trouble with peripheral neuropathy. But here's the key, and that's why I started with saying that many different cancers have some of these, and one of the things that we see a lot with breast cancer survivors is that they continue to gain weight, and that is a function of a whole cluster of these things put together and if you start with the simple fact that for most women the the diagnosis itself is a significant horrendously stress causing experience that throws a lot of that neurohormonal system off like right away so they've even done studies that found that even before you start treatment some of that 
cognitive dysfunction that later we call chemo brain, it's already starting because of that stress. And so each of these factors that we're talking about here are part of that whole cluster that is hit by, depending on what the various treatments you get, still end up coming out looking very similar. The thing is that they are clustered together, and it seems like that for some women, that whole cluster just hangs on they can't get out of the loop so they continue to feel poorly they continue to feel psychologically poorly and they can't sleep and then they never can get out of that loop and so some of the research is designed to where are the trigger points that may at least help address one of those underlying factors that may be in to get them out of the loop other women seem to recover better they just seem to have more resilience and that loop that they're caught in they eventually get out of over weeks and months and years later they're feeling pretty good many of them do but there's still a very high proportion that don't well you know that that sounds it's so real I know exactly I, I can relate so much to what you're saying and my heart hurts for for those caught in that loop and can't get out is there a way out I mean what are there some things that we can do to try to pull ourselves out of that if it's just one thing I, you know I'm good at one thing I'm not good at a whole <laughs> lifestyle change all at once but I'm good at one thing so what's the one thing I can do to try to break that loop <laughs> Well, and so this is this is what's interesting for me is that we can come up with research that says, oh, we got 20 women enrolled and we got them to start slow with physical activity and they kept building and kept building and they got they got out of the loop. But that was 20 women who were willing to sign up for that study that included physical activity. Now, there's so many women that when they start getting handed, well, here's what might help you, here's what might help you, they're too tired, they're not motivated. And then there's that that link that gets lost in the continuity of care. Like you said, you get the fireworks, yay, celebration, we're done. And there are lots of care plans now that are work, you know, there are a lot of systems that are working to create a continuity of care so that when you get back to primary care or you're only having a six month or a year annual checkup with your oncologist or surgeon, mm-hmm. you end up getting a little bit more of what might help you. But still, each specialty or primary care, they're focused on their own stuff and don't often even give you that nudge for what to do. But if you were to start with one thing, the one that's most evidenced in the literature, really physical activity. I mean, it's like they used to say, oh, you're tired, honey, go home and rest. You know, you need more rest. (laughs) And in the last 20 years, that whole body of knowledge has radically shifted. But it's hard for women to get started. It's one of the reasons that we work much more with very, very gentle exercises that we call rejuvenating movement. Mm -hmm. And how many times have I heard at the end of a study when we do our debriefing, women saying, If I thought this was a study about exercise, there's no way I would have joined. I couldn't get off off the couch. So I wouldn't have joined if I thought I was going to stand up and move. But the gentle movements and the breathing that goes with it seems to begin to get things going again. So there's so many different entry points. Well, I am really glad to hear you say that because when we... You know, you said that the the number one thing, if you're just going to pick one thing, is just is movement. But for, I think for a lot of people, we think movement is go out and run a mile. Yeah. <laughs> and and what you're telling me is it's not. It's gentle movement. It's it's 
it's walking, it's tell me tell me some of the gentle movements that a person could do right now when they when they're done listening to this radio show, they can just go put their shoes on and what could they do? Right. Um, that would make a difference. Oh, and, and and you're probably aware of this whole shift in research in general is they're starting to say sedentariness is the issue. So yeah. get up, put your shoes on walk where you're going rather than drive if it's close and yeah. doing things around the house doing things around the office we're starting to get more and more of these standing desks in the office well just standing isn't all that great but if you make sure that you walk over to the cabinet a little more often or walk down to the other person's office rather than text them yeah <laughs> yeah Think about and and there are apps even that do this that give you you know reminders. It's yeah, I'm wearing that. one right now. <laughs> yeah. We're trying. We're, when when can when should you move? Just a little reminder. Yeah. Just yep. get up and move around a little bit, even if it's once an hour. There are one of our past deans in our College of Nursing and Health Innovation had set up for a little while a system where music came on once an hour, and it basically was the reminder: get up and move your tush. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I yeah. love, you know, we have at our best friend's office, my office used to be um, down the hall and across across the hall, oh. and we have a gal that answers our phone. She's been with us forever. We love her to pieces. She's this tiny little thing, and if I would get a call, all she has to do is hit the intercom button and say, Becky, line one, but no, she'd get, I hear the little pitter-patter of feet come running down the hall to tell me I've got a call on line one, and that's, she got her exercise that way, just going, she, she didn't hit buttons and tell people things, she would go find the person and tell them and I gotta say she and she's older than me and I'm ratting her out right now but she's just got the we call her the energizer bunny and it's just a little thing but but she does it as a way of her life so we are going to take another break and we are down to the last segment here pretty soon so stay tuned we'll be back in a minute Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to keep our doors open and to keep this radio program alive. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can visit us at breastfriends.org. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Women's Channel. For Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio, visit breastfriends.org and contribute today. When was the last time you felt free? It's time to uncover that feeling again with the compassion of a cross and shield and the power of a card that opens doors to the best hospitals and medical centers in all 50 states. Giving you the freedom to love, to dream, to dance like no one is watching. Regions Blue Cross Blue Shield. Live fearless. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Voice America. 
are tuned into Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. To reach the program today, please call us at 1 866 472 5792. Again, that's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Becky at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to our program. We've been talking about the difficulties that women face after cancer treatment with our guest, Linda Larkey. And Linda, I thought of another question I wanted to ask you um, that goes back to what women can do to overcome some of this. And I told you I'm good with one thing at a time. So the one thing that we talked about at that moment was about gentle movement, put your shoes on, walk somewhere, just do something to get your body moving. Can you tell us a few other things that that because maybe there's some of that can multitask or something. <laughs> but right. tell us some of the other things that, that women can do, because maybe maybe they're already moving and they're not ready for step two. Absolutely. So. And like I said, there's like this cluster and being able to find an entry point that works for you is really critical. So there's a lot of a lot of research that has been done around the issue of, I know it sounds kind of like, how could that make a difference? Emotional expression, emotional acceptance, that all of the stuff that we bottle up inside has a tendency to continue to reproduce those symptoms of stress and the Mm. biochemistry around that. And to sit with another, to sit in a group and begin to open up your heart and share your feelings, share your fears, talk about it, find hope together. Those are powerful changes to the whole immune system. And so if if getting up and getting physically active isn't your starting point, for you it may be more important to be doing that. We're also seeing a huge amount of literature now accumulating in general for cancer patients and survivors to begin to change around the issues of um, meditation, mindfulness, or like we work with also mindful movement. You get two for, two, two for the, the deal there. You have, you have some of the meditative aspects where you're breathing and with each breath, you feel like you're opening up just a little bit more to the nurturing that the universe might provide as well as taking time for yourself. It helps you relax. It helps you change those biomarkers that do make a difference as you progress. And it also has the effect of, of changing your emotional status. So there's a little bit of physical activity involved. Great, that that helps in that too. So there's so it's almost like looking at all of the options that are offered out there, and then saying which one do I feel like I could get excited about, joyful about, enthused, and launch into one thing. So like you say, you can do one thing at a time. Any one person can pick one thing and say, I'm going to see how this feels and works. Yeah. Yeah, it occurred to me after I went through that thing with just the walking part. I never asked you about the other things because some people may have, you know, we all have, we're all different. And what I loved what you said about the emotional acceptance and being part of a of a group that can understand, you know, that's what support groups are for. And but I do want to say not all support groups are created equal. So don't try one support group and then hate it because they're all sitting around, you know, doctor bashing or something um find a different one because there there's all kinds of support groups you know for example at breast friends we don't call them support groups we call them girls night out we have these meetings all over the the city you know at different locations and 
gals get together and it's a potluck and they just bring, you know, whatever they want to talk about. And sometimes they're talking about their cancer. Sometimes they're talking about a movie they just saw, you know, it could be different things. We have walking groups that meet, you know, once a month and you just gather together and they take a good hike somewhere or they might do some other physical activity. So if, I, if one doesn't work, try another one because they're, it's, they're only as successful as the people in them and the leadership of them. And, you know, we think our groups are pretty good, but um, that personality group might not be best for you. So try another one. And But it's definitely worth looking into because there's nothing better than feeling like you belong somewhere. And one thing with cancer is it can be very isolating and it doesn't need to be because there are many, many of us out here and we are a sisterhood. It's not one anybody ever wants to join, but we are here. And once you've joined the sisterhood, you're, you get to stay if you want. So it's, it's kind of an awesome thing and you do get support and you do get that emotional acceptance, you know, that your cancer and all the feelings you have are not just yours. You're you're in among greatness, you know, as you're going through that. And meditation, if, if prayer works better for you, I, I'm guessing that prayer and meditation, kind of the same thing. And um, and just mindfully doing things, even eating, you know, mindfully eating and not just opening a bag of chips and having them next to you on the couch. Because I can eat a whole bag of salt and vinegar potato chips just like that <laughs> if I wanted to. So I got to put them in a bowl, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> control the amount, right? <laughs> And I, I know gotta, I shouldn't have, have those at all, but that's the way it is. I love those. I've got to add a quick story is that okay. in one of our earliest studies working with a meditative movement practice, somewhere within the third or fourth week, I started getting women coming back and saying, yeah, I'm, I'm losing weight. Is, is that right? And we, we said, well, this isn't the kind of physical activity you usually expect that would reduce your weight. This is very, very I mean, this is very gentle, very... Um, low intensity kind of movement so it's not because of some aerobic effect but that we started exploring and we're continuing to look at this is what is it that is making the difference and we think it's a combination of being more in touch with your body being more in touch with your feelings getting a chance to really weigh in before you sit down and eat that bag of chips <laughs> and, and we don't teach that at all they're just paying more attention they're, they're coming back into their bodies after what seems like a train wreck inside their bodies. They're coming yeah. back. They're ready to come back in again and begin to feel their feelings. And so I, I love think it's that. a lot of different things and many different kinds of practices, whether sitting in a group or sitting with a beloved and holding hands and being able to share deeply, all of those things may begin to put them back on that path. Well, you know, I when you talk about this, it, it makes my heart happy because you sound so happy. You sound joyful as you're telling these these things. And so this is obviously something that you're very passionate about. You know, you can always tell when somebody's passionate about things because they get <laughs> they get animated and they get excited and you know, and you you really are in touch with all of this and I appreciate it so much. So I'm going to ask you this might be a really hard question for you to answer or maybe be really easy, <laughs> but what do you love most about the work that you do? Hmm. I'm guessing you love but, all of it, but it must be something. Uh, yeah, quite a bit of it. So, and and recognize that I'm in a, an academic position, and so I have co-faculty that work with me, peop- faculty that are junior faculty that I mentor. We have hmm. students who work with us on our projects. So a lot of my joy 
actually comes in through the mentoring and the embracing people into the the world of research around things that we feel are really going to make a difference and that are meaningful. And so that's one of the big ones. I would say also, and I'll I'll confess here, you know, when you run research as the primary investigator, you're mm-hmm. not really supposed to be out there doing the interventions because, you know, you could kind of skew things a little yeah, bit. Yeah, a little bias here and there. <laughs> in a while, we'll have one of our instructors is out sick and, you know, who raises their hand and volunteers, ah, go teach. I love going out and teaching and working with our community of breast cancer survivors. We have other studies that are with other populations as well. Um, women who are sedentary and overweight. Um, you know, we have we have different kinds of studies going on. But if I get a chance to go out there and, and teach my stuff, like yesterday morning, I did. I got to go teach a group of older adults who are living alone. And we're looking at the effect of these amazing um, practices where you're you're take it's almost like moving prayer. You're taking in all of creation and acknowledging and um, accessing the resources in your mind's eye, in your heart, as you're moving and breathing and just shifting the way that you're feeling. And I got to go teach that with a group. And what we're looking at is how that affects blood pressure, but also which is a critical um, indicator. When one lives alone, there's a little bit more of a likelihood that some of these cardiac problems occur, Mm. as well as looking at oxytocin, which you may be familiar with as the, you know, the, um, the social hormone, the one that's that you sit down with your female friends in the coffee clutch, we're generating oxytocin when we touch each other, when we breastfeed, we are generating oxytocin. So it, it pours a whole new cascade of biochemicals into our system and we're studying that i think that's just fascinating so one piece of advice to anybody listening today who might be feeling some of these symptoms if you could give them one piece of advice not about the specific things but just something you could say to inspire them i guess what i know i didn't tell you i was going to ask you that so that's fine you know um i'll talk about something that has inspired me and that I really think is one of the keys to understanding how these changes happen and work. What are the mechanisms here? Um, you know, I, I said you can enter that, that circle, that you can enter the cluster of issues that you may be experiencing and begin to break out of those symptoms by entering at any point and One of the things that I've really begun to see in my research that is very central is something that we call heart rate variability. And heart rate variability is how much change there is beat to beat with your heart. When you get older and you get stuck, your heart rate variability becomes like a metronome. It's just boom, boom, boom. And if you have continued emphasis on how to create a more rhythmic heart rate variability that can go up and down with the experiences of life. It's kind of like a metaphor for resilience. Mm. Well, what does that mean in terms of what do you go out and do? Now, there are ways to actually work directly with your heart rate variability and improve it with heart rate variability biofeedback, like the heart math group mm-hmm. does um, is, is one a really powerful instrument for shifting your inner environment 
But what we're finding is that it doesn't matter if you're listening to a story. There's a whole line of research that I work on that looks at storytelling. If you're listening to a story of someone who's gone through a similar experience and they got through it and they're going through that, they can tell you about the valley and they can tell you about the mountain. At the other end of that, you're shifting your heart rate variability. If you're learning a meditative practice, you're shifting your heart rate variability. And so my suggestion would be go inside, find within your heart when you start considering what might I do differently to begin to change is go to that little voice that's in your heart. Because I think okay. that's where you speak with spirit and ask that makes sense. what would be my best first step. That makes sense. And I'm going to cut you off on that one right there because I want to hear <laughs> about, we have. I'm going to give you the 60 second one here. This has to be quick, okay? okay. Um, how, how can people enroll, learn, at, learn about and enroll in your current projects? You're in Arizona right. and you're with the University of Arizona? Um, Arizona State University. Sorry. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> oh you're a sports fan. Race. Sorry about that. Okay. I was with you there, too, so okay. that's fine. Yeah. So how can they enroll in that? And then when we're done with that, i got to go right to the close here. So. Great. Okay. So women who are survivors, 6 to 10 years past their primary treatment, um, stage 0 to 3, age 45 to 75, you can look us up on Recovery and Re- Rejuvenation, all one word, on Facebook. You can call... 602-496-2329. That's 602-496-2329. Or you can just send an email to rnr at asu.edu. That's R, the letter R, the letter N, letter R, rnr at oh, asu. Oh, that's good. Yeah. You. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Well, I am so thankful that you took the time out of your schedule to be on our show today. We are out of time. So um, this show will be available on our archives by the end of the day. And uh, obviously, you can listen to it on any of your favorite podcasts. We're on iTunes, Google Play and a million others. So all you have to do is just go to your favorite one, uh, look, search for Breast Friends Podcast, and all of our episodes pop up with the most recent one on the top. So you'll be able to listen to this later. So with that said, please go to our website, breastfriends.org. Click on that big blue button at the top of the page and make a donation if you love our show because we are donor-supported, and that's how we keep our doors open. Um, and we will be back next week. Until then, remember, there is always hope, and we are here to help you find it. For listening to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Please join Sharon Hannafin and Becky Olson again next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Women's Channel. There is always hope and we'll help you find it. We'll talk again next time. <laughs>